questions. The White House was hosting its annual White House Easter egg roll this past Monday. This is a tradition long since established, 1878. Today, here on the White House lawn, you can have as many as some 35,000 parents and children there at the annual Easter egg roll. Uh, it is held every Easter Monday, uh, that meaning the for many uh, in certain traditions of the church, that being the first Sunday of what is oftentimes referred to as Eastertide. Now, Eastertide, in particular in the Western tradition of the church, is a season of 50 days, starting with Easter Sunday, going on through Pentecost. Uh, it's how it's set aside, and it's recognized with each one of the Sundays within that 50-day period is a, a Sunday of Easter. So this Sunday, one week after of Easter, is understood within the framework of Eastertide as the second Sunday of Easter. And next Sunday will be the third Sunday of Easter, and so on and so on. And, and really, while that may be foreign to, to many of us here in the room, that, that tradition, that way of recognizing and setting aside that part of the church calendar and, and doing so with some intentionality, the Eastertide tradition is really very helpful when you think about it, because it insists upon uh, our reflecting on and being reminded of the ongoing impact and reality of the empty tomb, Easter Sunday, Jesus' resurrection of the dead, that is not just stopping its significance once we put the eggs and the bunnies away. If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me now to John chapter 20. We need to be reminded of these things continually. We need to be reminded of these things. John chapter 20, this is the fourth of the four gospels that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So it's the fourth book of the New Testament. We're in Matthew 20. This is the apostle uh, John. He is giving us here his version, his perspective, his accounting of the events uh, there on that Easter Sunday. So John 20, going to look at one of the appearances that Jesus makes there, not in the morning, but now it's several hours later, it's in, it's in the evening. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. John 20, verses 19 through 23. Hear now the word of God. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, thank you for just the time we've had thus far in this service. That would have been time well spent, to say the least, uh, to be participants in this service, um, harnessed together as individual worshipers, really as a, as a whole team of worshipers assembled in this room. We thank you. Thank you for these songs. Thank you for these readings. Thank you for this ordination and installation. And we 
thank you now for this time to delve into this text for just a few minutes. This historical account, something that really, really happened, things that were seen, things that were said, things that were heard, things that were experienced, things that were recorded and preserved and passed down faithfully for generations. And here we are this morning with an opportunity to hear. We ask that your Holy Spirit, the very one alluded to in this text, would move. Oh, would he move. Would not a one single soul in this room walk out of here the way we came in. Pray this in your name. We are the most over-informed, under-reflective society in human history. That is the conclusion of a Harvard-based study not that long ago. I'll read to you the conclusion again. We are the most over-informed, under-reflective society in human history. It's not, it wasn't that long ago that the way you got your news was the morning newspaper and the evening news. And that's how you got your news. How do we get it today? Every 30 seconds, something is streaming into this device and vibrating on our desk, on our belt, in our purse, on our person in some way. Constantly, constantly, we are bombarded with signals and input and stimuli in, in so many different areas. And, and you know this. I mean, because of that, there's so little time to reflect or taken to reflect or to contemplate or discuss anything substantive uh, at any real level at all. Experts, understandably, from a variety of different fields and, and um, studies have been done pointing to again and again and again. And it's not just the young, but it's the old and everybody in between. Our attention span is dropping through the floor. We are distracted continually so we can't drive 30 seconds without checking. You know this, right? If you drive down to Nashville, how many people are going down the interstate checking their phones because we can't bear silence. We can't bear the gnawing, creeping, clawing, just silence. We can't handle it. The significance of a moment, of a day, of a week, of a month, of a life, is oftentimes just utterly lost on us. We are like paved slopes on which no water has any hope of sinking in. That's so tragically often the case. And yet at the same time, there is so much that is so worthy, and we stand in such great need of, reflecting on, delving into, and seriously considering. You see the tension? What we are and yet what we're surrounded by or need to take in, what we really ought to take in. Well, why am I bringing this up on the second Sunday of Easter? Why is that worth mentioning? Why am I poking myself in the eye and everyone else here? 
uh, on, on this point. Because of what we find with the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is the realization of our deepest longings. And we need to, can I put it this way? Look into the tomb and see that it's empty and wrestle with the implications of that, the significance of that. The resurrection of Jesus is the realization of the deepest longings of the human heart. We must, we must then look into the tomb. And as we do so this morning, what longings do we find are in fact met? These three, it's in there in your outline. These three things, these deep abiding longings. That's just true of every man, woman, and child on the face of this earth. It doesn't matter the culture. It doesn't matter the background, the language, the anything. This is true of us all as human beings. These longings. One, the longing for peace with God. Two, the longing for the presence of God. And three, the longing for the purpose of God in our lives. Those three, yes, I know it's alliteration. There was intentionality uh, with that to help us remember it because it's that important the peace, the presence, and the purpose of God. Let's look at these in turn, the peace of God. What do we see here? Again, let's go back to just the first two verses of the text, and we see something of that. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, then the disciples were glad, another way to translate that would be we're overjoyed when they saw the Lord, the peace of God. It's at least two levels here, even in just this short text, two-fold sense in which you could say the peace of God. First, peace from God. Peace from God. This world is a scary, frightening, full-of-harm place. And what do we see? with the disciples. The doors are locked, and they are afraid. Why? Why are they afraid? Because they are concerned that the very ones, the Jewish authorities, who pressed to have their leader executed upon a cross two days before, will come after them. And so the doors are locked, and they are afraid. And into literally that space, Jesus comes, miraculously so. Now, pay attention to the text. We're not told how. We're not told, does he pass through the door? We're not told. We're not told if he somehow from outside the door unlocks the bolt. We're not told. We're just told, miraculously, there he is. And that, though we're not told how, makes very clear, makes abundantly clear that nothing's going to keep him out. You can't restrain him. You can't constrain him. You can't keep him from being the shepherd of his own to guide, provide, and protect his people. And therein we see something immediately with the reality of he comes as the risen one, to bring peace from God in the midst of this frightening place, this fallen world in which we live. 
But there's a second sense in which this text shows us that he comes bringing peace. Not just the peace from God, but peace with God. What are these men likely feeling beyond just fear? Fear of those on the outside. What are they feeling regarding themselves, given what has happened over the last 48-plus hours? Discouragement. Disappointment. Dismay. Because the one that they put put everything, the freight of all their hopes, was gone. And as though that wasn't bad enough, as though that's not enough of a downer for how they're feeling that evening, they're getting some strange word that the tomb is empty. That really, that, that's befuddling to them. And yet, mixed in all of that, there's the guilt and the shame that they had to have felt because they had abandoned him in his hour of need. Into that space, Jesus comes. And what does he say? He does not deride them. He does not bring up their desertion. He does not remind them or press into that and say, where were you? But rather, he comes with a greeting. It's a traditional Jewish greeting, peace be with you. But in this context, it's surely, again, great freight is laden to significance with his saying, this, and not just once, but twice, the repetition to, to, for emphasis, peace be with you. Words of assurance, words of acceptance, words of friendship, words of forgiveness. Peace be with you. My friends, look into the tomb. It is empty. And it is pointing us towards not just the possibility, but the reality and certainty of peace with God. Peace with God. The famous... Um, Psychiatrist Carl Menninger went on record as saying this some years ago. That if he could go into our, the psychiatric hospitals in this country and convince the people there that they were forgiven, 75% of them could go home the next day. Now think about that. Is there, is, does that make sense at all? Here's how that could really make sense, how that really, you could really see how that, that's some reality to that. All right, your heart is laden with guilt. You're feeling oppressed by the weight of what you did or failed to do, what you said, did, shouldn't have said, did say, whatever. You're overwhelmed, overcome, your conscience is stricken by this. You have a few choices, very few choices really, in terms of what you can do with that. You can try to fix it if you want. You can try to work hard. You can try to overcompensate. You can try and counterbalance all the muck of what you've done with trying you know, to add enough brownie points with God to make you feel better by fixing it. That's one choice. Another is to just forget it. Just drown it out. 
plunge yourself into the endless distractions around us, whether they be legal or illegal, whether it have to do with this or shopping or eating or whatever it may be. The list is so long and it just gets longer of the way, the possible ways we can distract ourselves, numb ourselves, ignore it, forget it. Whether we want to try and fix it or forget it, either one is just at the surface. It's not dealing with what's down underneath. Fixing it and forgetting it will never work. We need to be forgiven. We need to be washed. We need to be cleansed and know that we have been. Again, it comes back to this reality. The resurrection is the realization of our deepest longings. Peace with God. Peace with God. Look into the tomb. Takes us to the second point. Not just the peace of God, but the presence of God. Indeed, that we are not alone. Verses 21 and 22. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. This is just tremendous, beautiful, though it be mysterious. The question of the breathing, what's going on here? Uh, it is remarkable, you know, the physicality that John wants us to, 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 to feel, to see, to, to know that's going on here in this. Jesus can be touched. He can be heard. His breath can be felt. This is eminently physical. He is certainly not a ghost. And he does breathe on them. And what, what's going on there? Commentators, there is some diversity of opinion on here. Some will say that what's going on here is an initial bestowal of the Holy Spirit, a foretaste of a fuller out, the fuller outpouring that was to come in 50 days at the day of Pentecost. That's a possibility, but I will tell you, I think it's much more likely that this is not an, an, an initial bestowal of the Spirit, a down payment or foretaste, but rather an enacted parable, uh, a, a symbolic picturing of who and what was to come at Pentecost. The idea being, and it's interesting that John's doing this, and he's capturing a mining of something that he said way back in John 1, go back when you get home and read that, the allusions to creation, just as at creation, the living God breathed life into Adam, Jesus is making clear that there is another breathing and life, richer life, fuller life, that, that is, is coming. All of which points us towards the reality, the necessity of the Holy Spirit. The reality and the necessity of the Holy Spirit. This is something that Jesus promised he had spoken of, um, no, no question about it. He, he certainly had alluded to this and tried to bring the disciples' attention to this in John 14, 15, and 16. Those chapters, you see Jesus speaking to this, preparing them for what was coming. At the very end of Matthew's gospel, the very last verse of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says these, these words, Behold, I am wish, with you always, to the end of the age. Now, it begs a question, though, doesn't it? If he's leaving, how can that be? Right? If he's leaving, how can he be with them? 
Well, I mentioned John 14, 15, and 16. Let's go to John 14. John chapter 14, just a few chapters earlier in the gospel that we're looking at here together this morning. I just want to look at one verse, John 14, verse 16. John 14, verse 16, listen to Jesus' words to his disciples. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Uh, another, the, the Greek word there is, is paraclete, and it can be translated as helper. It can be translated as advocate. It can be translated as counselor or friend. It's a, it's a range. It's a rich, rich uh, term there. The idea is this. He's saying, I'm sending you another, which of course begs the question, well, who was the first? He was the first. I have been your paraclete, your counselor, your friend, your helper, your advocate. And in my absence, I am sending yet another to continue the work, to continue what I have begun, to my presence with you will not cease. My living presence with you, within you, not just with you, but within you, will not cease. Again, friends, look into the tomb. There we have the assurance, not just of the peace of God, but the presence of God with us even now. Okay, it's Easter or Easter season. Let's think back to Christmas. The Emmanuel promise. God is with us. God is with us. That, that is a, a promise that is repeated throughout the, the Bible, Old and New Testament. Every genre of literature, Old and New Testament, we see that promise coming up again and again and again and again. I am with you. For instance, I'll take you to two places. Psalm 121. Psalm 121 is beautiful in the... Um, the way this is phrased for us. Psalm 121, verses 5 through 6. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. We could spend all afternoon in the Psalms just with this theme. Isaiah 49. We read from Isaiah 43 earlier. Isaiah 49, though, verses 14 through 16. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. In response to this, the Lord says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands, your walls, your city, your home are continually before me. Oh, how we need to hear this assurance, this promise, this reality that the Lord is with us of his presence. To hear that, to know that, lay hold of that, live out of that. Now, this is not to say that his, we always feel that presence, that we always feel that nearness. No, that's not what's promised. The reality is what's promised. The feeling sense of that reality is never promised. Think of Mary in the garden, just the, 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 the encounter that she has just prior to what we're looking at here in John 20. Jesus is right there, and she can't recognize him. Now, 
That's emblematic for my experience so much. Is it not for yours? He's right there, but we can't see it. We don't feel it. But it doesn't change whether or not it's true. Friends, it's a cloudy day. Can you see the sun? No. Is it gone? No. At a conversation, I mentioned Carl the, uh, the other day, or the, a week or two ago, uh, the gentleman from Eleuthera Island in the Bahamas. We were talking about no You know what a no is, don't you? Those little bugs you don't see, but dang, do you feel them. The fact that you can't see them, does it change the impact they have upon your life and comfort level? No, it does not. They are the no Oh, it is the height of foolishness. I would just go so far just looking at myself in the mirror and say, Richard, arrogance to say just because you don't feel his presence doesn't mean he's not with you, doesn't mean somehow he's negated his promise. Oh, just to you because you're the exception. We don't understand the mystery of his ways. How could we? We don't understand what he's doing at certain periods of our lives, why he's added this or taken away that. We may ask ourselves, scratch our head, ask our friends with tears, and rightfully so, what is he doing? in this world, in the relationships around me, in my heart. I don't know. I just know he's real, and he's with us. And that's what we can know, the abiding presence of God, the Emmanuel promise. Again, the resurrection of Jesus is, in fact, the realization of all of our longings. God is with us. God is with us. God is with us. Lastly, not just the peace of God, the presence of God, but the purpose from God. The purposes that he gives to us and to, to live out even in this life. Verses 21, pick up, and we stopped in verse 21, pick up there again and read on now through verse 23. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Uh, This is a commission Jesus is is giving here. Uh, It's 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 quite a a commission, a mission, a a commission that he is giving. The the parallel is quite striking when you you see how Jesus phrases this. And and what he says uh, to his disciples, the sent one of the Father is sending out his own into the world to continue his mission. The sent one of the Father is sending out his own to continue this mission then and now. He continues that sending. The mission is not over. In that sense, the work is not done. And he continues to send his disciples, his followers, forth. Now, you think in terms of the implications of that. 
As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Oh my goodness, just, we just had, I wish we had more time. But how humbling that is when you consider who it is that is sending us and he would send us. How emboldening that is when you consider who it is doing the sending. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And what did he experience, oh, by the way, in the sending? My friends, there will be a cost. There will be suffering involved in following him. It's simply, we're told that again and again through the Scriptures. To follow him is to follow the suffering servant. It implies also, of course, and it's, it's coupled right here with the promised coming of the Spirit, our need to rely and depend upon His Spirit in order to follow Him and to rely and look upon one another as we do this not solo, but together. Jesus had friends, lived in community. How mistaken we are to think we can do else otherwise. The commission, striking, just so striking here. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. But there's not just the commission. As we go forth, there's a proclamation that we make as well. And we see that in verse 23, and I do want to read that again. Verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Jesus says this so strongly, it is so easy to misunderstand what he is saying. But let's be clear on this. Mankind has committed cosmic treason against the living God. He is the offended party. He is the only one that can grant forgiveness because he is the offended party, which means then we do not because we cannot bestow forgiveness in the sense that you might think this text is speaking of. This is why Jesus got into so much trouble with the Jewish officials because they heard him saying he was was giving the the forgiveness that only God could give. Well, of course, they're looking at him and thinking, you're a blasphemer, you're but a man. You can't do that. But of course, they don't understand. He is God, and he is the offended party. He can do that. He can pronounce such forgiveness. We cannot. What we can do is what this text is actually referring to, and that is proclaim. Proclaim the need that we have for forgiveness. Proclaim the reality that our consciences speak to, that we need to, have, to be forgiven, wash clean. We can proclaim the need, and we can proclaim the sole means of that forgiveness, the finished work of Jesus. His having lived the life we should have lived and died the death we deserve to die. That's the commission and the proclamation that he sends all of us still now today. Friends, again, look into the tomb. Let's look into the tomb. What do we see? The reality of the peace, the reality of his presence, and the reality of purpose that he has given us for our days. And I just just want to, in terms of application, just drill down simply on that, that that simple idea that the living God, your creator, has given you purpose. Is that not what we see everyone around us running wild to find? Something to live for, 
a cause to die for, a reason, in some cases quite literally, to get up in the morning. Is that not what so many of us are chasing after and seeking after? Isn't that why we see such mislaid, misfortunate or unfortunate and sad and tragic, misguided devotion to certain causes? And it's so fervent in the devotion to certain causes and reasons for living. And and we don't need to to soft-pedal that and say that certain things aren't wrong and misguided and evil and destructive. We can certainly label it and call it for what it is, but we can also say and recognize something of what's going on there at the heart level. It may not just be madness. It may be the deep hunger of the human heart that's just completely out of whack. We've been given purpose. Purpose of the living God. Again, let's look into the tomb. The resurrection is the realization of our deepest longings, our deepest longings. Let's not lose sight of that. The core of discovery, led by Meriwether Lewis and William Clark, some of you may know if you remember back your your history lessons, is said by many to be the most uh, momentous expedition in American history and the greatest, one of the greatest adventure stories of all time. Let me read to you the purpose uh, of that mission, that expedition, in the words of President Thomas Jefferson himself, who was responsible, the driving force for the whole thing. So what Jefferson said, the object of your mission is to explore the Missouri River and such principal streams of it as by its course and communication with the waters of the Pacific Ocean whether the Columbia, Oregon, Colorado, or any other river may offer the most direct and practicable water communication across this continent for the purposes of of commerce. That's really what it was about. The idea was to try and find a water route from the Mississippi to the Pacific, which, of course, you can't find because it doesn't exist. But, boy, did they have fun trying. Uh, the, uh, The preparation was incredibly extensive, and it had to be. Lewis himself studied astronomy, botany, navigation, medicine, biology, and several other disciplines over the course of the years leading up to this. He collected well over two tons of goods, guns, ammunition, medical supplies, scientific instruments. And again, they had to, given just what little they understood about what lay in front of them. They left Pittsburgh in May 1804, returned to St. Louis in September 1806. Their journey covered over 8,000 miles. 8,000 miles. Uh, Moving through harsh, hostile, mostly unknown territory. Again, extraordinary effort. But here's the thing. They wanted to find out what was there. They wanted to find out what was there. They wanted to press into this land that had been just purchased from the French. They couldn't just turn away. They knew so much was there. You see where I'm going with this? With the resurrection of Jesus, Easter, the empty tomb, There is so much there. 
We cannot turn away. How can we turn away? There is so much there. If we had been there, one of the disciples, we would have seen what is being written of here. And our response, our stunned response would have been, every one of us, he is not here. He is risen. He is risen indeed. The resurrection is the realization of our greatest longings. Let's look into the tomb. Pray with me.